All right, church, you have those Bibles with you today? It's time to dig into God's good word, amen? The religious landscape in America is changing. It's been changing for quite some time. Back in the 1950s, the vast majority of Americans not only believed in Christianity and identified themselves as Christians, the vast majority of Americans also believe that this was God's Word. Period. The vast majority of Americans believe that attending church every week was very important for any Christian. The vast majority of those in America believed that Jesus Christ was the only way to heaven. The vast majority of Americans believe this no longer. The religious climate has been changing. The religious landscape has been changing. And survey after survey and study after study has confirmed this. Uh, Let me ask you, do you know what the fastest growing religion in America is today? Any guesses? Okay. Not a bad guess with Islam because Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. In America, there's one that beats it. Survey after survey reveals that the fastest growing religion in America is, you ready for this? Unaffiliated. Unaffiliated. So, not necessarily atheist, not necessarily agnostic, simply unaffiliated. And survey after survey reveals this. In recent years, more and more Americans have distanced themselves from any organized religion. And interestingly, most of those who identify with a certain religion, do not, when push comes to shove, agree with some of their own religion's most ardent beliefs. Christians, for example, most people in America will still identify themselves as Christians. Most Americans will still say, I believe in God, but no longer does the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus is the only way. More and more people are believing that many religions lead to the same God. Many religions and many paths lead to heaven. Many are believing in greater numbers that this is not the word of God, but this is the word of man that perhaps was inspired to some extent by God. The truth is we live in a post-Christian culture where more and more people are treating their spiritual lives kind of like a, a spiritual golden corral. You know what I mean? You go to Golden Corral and you get your shiny plate and and you, you look in front of you at the smorgasbord of all of these various items and many people today, probably still most in America, will go up to the smorgasbord of spiritual religion and they'll get themselves a large helping of Christianity, but they make sure there's plenty of room left on their plate for the side dishes. You know what I mean? And so they'll get a, health, a healthy scoop of Christianity on their spiritual plate, but they'll also scoop in a, a little bit of Judaism and scoop in a little bit of Buddhism because Buddhism uh, with its uh, offshoots of certain forms of yoga and whatnot, it's very chic today, and so I've got to have a helping of, of uh, yoga. And many will say, I'm going to put a little scoop of Wicca on there because I love the Harry Potter series after all, and so I'll put a little scoop of, of Wicca and witchcraft on there. And for good measure, we've got to make sure we've got a hefty scoop of humanism because that keeps Oprah happy. What we have today is the smorgasbord of religion, the smorgasbord of spiritual thought that very much is Oprahology. 
you look at all the religions out there, and, and I will pick and choose a little bit from each one because there's this belief that more and more Americans are believing that ultimately all of these religions have certain things in common. Can't we all get along? Can't we pick and choose from these different ones and produce something that is much, much better than any of the others on their own? And so what an interesting and strange time we live in today. When many people in this post-Christian culture are asking, is Jesus, as proclaimed in the Bible, really enough? I definitely want Jesus on my plate, but is He really enough? Is Jesus really enough to give me purpose in life? Is Jesus really enough to solve the problems of this world? Is Jesus really enough to help Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump get along? Is Je- <laughs> You're not supposed to answer that way. Is Jesus Christ really enough to make me happy? And the Bible answers back with a resounding, yes, He is. Jesus Christ is enough. And so this morning we begin a new verse-by-verse study of the book of Colossians. And this study is so relevant, this study is so timely, because Paul will make it clear that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus isn't part of the answer to the world's greatest problems. He is the full answer to our world's greatest problems. Jesus isn't part of the answer to our needs. He is the full answer. He is the whole package. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is a little more than three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll be, if you're using one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 1165, page 1165. If you have your own Bible with you today, that's even better. Open to the book of Colossians. I encourage you as always to have your message notes and a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. This is going to be a great series. If you do not love the book of Colossians yet, I think you're going to start to love it in short order. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, this is your time. Lord Jesus, this is your day. This is your day much more than it's the Patriots' day or the Eagles' day or anyone else's day. This is your day. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, as we know you're already in this place, we invite you into this study process and we pray that you would teach us to unlock truths from Colossians 1 that you want us to grasp and apply to our lives. Teach us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So we're in Colossians chapter 1. As always, when we dive into a new book study, I think it's important for us to get our bearings uh, all set by asking and answering five key questions. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? Why was it written? And why should I care? So let's quickly answer those five questions. First of all, who wrote the book of Colossians? That's an easy question to answer. Simply look at the very first verse of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So who wrote the book of Colossians? It was written by written by Paul. You can put that in your blank. Some of you might ask, well, what about Timothy? Well, Timothy is most likely only mentioned because he was with Paul and he was affirming the truth of what Paul was writing. 
So he's confirming that what is in these four chapters is inspired and given by the Lord. We know it's Paul from verse 1 of chapter 1, and if you look at the final verse of the final chapter, Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul once again identifies himself as the author of this letter. Question number two, to whom was it written? This is also a rather easy question to answer. It's also in verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, and then verse 2, actually, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So this letter was written to the Christian church in Colossae. Uh, the Christian church, those folks were known as the Colossians, hence the name of this book, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. So that's all fine and good. It was written to the church in Colossae. But where on earth is Colossae? I am so glad you asked that question. So take a peek at the screen here. Here's a map of the Mediterranean Sea, the large blue mass in the middle of your screen. You go kind of northeast of that, and you can see the city of Colossae in the middle of that landmass that is modern-day Turkey, uh, sometimes referred to as Asia Minor, that little stretch of land uh, between Asia and Europe. It's known as Asia Minor. Let's go to that second map. So that is, makes it a little more clear where Colossae is. Notice that Ephesus is located on the map just to the left of Colossae. Ephesus was about 100 miles from the town of Colossae. Uh, interestingly, uh, Paul never went to the city of Colossae to do ministry. He didn't plant the church in Colossae. He didn't grow the church in Colossae. And so I find that really fascinating. When we're studying the book of Colossians, much like the book of Romans, Paul is writing to these Christians, most of whom he had never met. He never attended one of their services, but he has this marvelous heart and love for the Christians in Colossae, and he had learned some things that he wanted to address here in this letter. But here we have this wonderful city of Christians that Paul is speaking into their lives. Now, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, uh, we're able to be given a, a little bit of the backstory on how the church of Colossae was likely formed. If you were to look at Acts chapter 19, verse 10, at the time, Paul was in the city of Ephesus, once again, just a hundred miles to the west. He was in that port city of Ephesus where he was ministering for over two years. It's the longest Paul ever stayed at any city on his missionary journeys. He stayed there for over two years. And in Ephesus, according to Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says, All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Province of Asia is another way of saying Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And so as he's ministering in Ephesus, if we piece the details together, it seems pretty clear that Paul led some individuals to Christ there in Ephesus who then traveled a hundred miles back to their hometown of Colossae and in turn planted the church there that was an offshoot of Paul's ministry. And so this is kind of like a, a granddaughter church of Paul. And he loved them and he wanted to pour into their lives there in the town of Colossae. Question number three, when was this book written? In all likelihood, it was written in about 60 A.D. 60 A.D., that would have been about 30 years after Jesus hung on the cross. And so by this time, Paul had been ministering for some time, and uh, we think it was about 30 years after Jesus went to the cross. Interestingly, we know historically that around 61 A.D., there was a violent earthquake that all but destroyed the city of Colossae. And so Paul writes them this letter to bolster them in their faith and strengthen them in their faith, quite likely within a year or so of that town 
uh, being hit with this terrible natural disaster. Question number four, why was it written? An important question. Colossians was written in order to refute some heresies that had infiltrated the church. We'll learn more about that in chapter 2 when we get to that in a couple weeks. But some heresy had infiltrated the church, so Paul wanted to address that. But secondly, he just wanted to encourage the Christians to continue following sound teaching. So there's really these two reasons for writing this book of Colossians, to refute the heresy and to encourage the Christians to follow the sound teaching. Question number five, why should I care? Why should I care? Well, interestingly, there's a reason why I gave that opening illustration about the spiritual climate in America today. Because as we get to chapter 2 in a couple weeks, we'll see that some of these heresies that Paul is addressing make it clear that they had a similar uh, golden corral view of religion in the city of Colossae that we have in America today. And what was happening is there were these false teachers coming into the church in Colossae and saying, that's great that you follow Jesus and all, but you need Jesus plus something else. Uh, You follow Christianity, that's wonderful, but did you happen to notice if you take Jesus and Christianity and kind of bunch them up on one side of your plate, there's some open space for some other good stuff. And so we had this city of Colossae where these people were starting to infiltrate the church and try to convince them that Jesus was not enough. Christianity was not enough. And very similar to our climate today. So why should I care? Because either Jesus is all-sufficient or he's not. Either Jesus is all-sufficient or you and I need someone or something else to supplement Jesus. And we need to know the answer. And the book of Colossians provides the answer. And as it provides the answer, it will teach us how to live in response to that answer. Sound like a good study to you? I hope so. It sure does to me. I hope you're blessed as we dive in to Colossians chapter 1. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Colossians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all of its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? May God bless us as we study His Word. These verses are just amazing, and there's so much in them, we, we can't hope to, to cover all the little nooks and crannies of these great verses in the next 20 minutes, but uh, let's try to hit the highlights. I want you to see that in these verses, 
for starters, they reveal Paul's heart for the Colossian Christians. They really reveal his heart for the church there in Colossae. Uh, there were a few things about the Colossian church that I didn't tell you. I mentioned to you that Paul had never personally visited the church, but I didn't share with you some little tidbits about the city of Colossae that I think are important to understand to really grasp how marvelous it is that Paul loved this church so much. I want to put another map of Colossae on the screen for you. So one thing I didn't mention to you is that you had these three cities that were located in this geographic area referred to as the uh, Lycus River Valley. You have Colossae there kind of to the south. And then just a few miles away was the town of Laodicea. You may recognize that town because that's one of the seven churches to which Jesus Christ writes a letter in Revelation chapter 3. The Laodicean church, you may remember that's the one where Jesus says, you're lukewarm. I'd rather you be hot or cold because you're lukewarm. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth, so you guys better get your act together there in Laodicea. So the Laodicean church was just a few miles away from the Colossian church. And then up to the north of the Lycus River was this other town of Hierapolis. Now, interestingly, a hundred years or so earlier, before Paul wrote this letter, Colossae was a a pretty happening town. It was a pretty well-traveled town because across this rich, uh, lush Lycus River Valley uh, would come the east-west trade routes in those days. And so you'd have all these guys in the caravans coming east to west and west to east, thousands upon thousands of people every year. And so for quite a while, Colossae was a happening town on the trade route. But by the time Paul had written this letter, Colossae was a podunk little town. It, it had lost its glory years. And it was completely upstaged and overshadowed by Laodicea, which was the financial capital of that whole region. Those people were rolling in the dough. It was kind of like the Beverly Hills of the region. It was the financial capital and also the political capital of that region. To the north, Hierapolis, those people had thousands of tourists coming in every year because Hierapolis had these wonderful natural hot springs. And people began to believe that if you soaked in these hot springs, it would heal you of your ailments. Uh, It was believed that these springs had this medicinal healing value. And so thousands would flock to Hierapolis. And so everybody was going to Hierapolis or going to Laodicea. No one wanted to go to Colossae. It was kind of like poor Atalanto. Poor Atalanto, it can be a wonderful town, but let's be honest, it's overshadowed by Victorville and Asperia. It's overshadowed by those larger cities that straddle the I-15 corridor, and poor Atalanto is over there with lowly little 395. And Atalanto can be a wonderful town, but people don't say, I'm going to go to the high desert to visit Atalanto, do they? And so many people will look down on that town. Many people will call that town names. I won't share any of them with you now. Many people will look down on that town, and that's a bit of a shame. And it was a bit of a shame with Colossae, people look down. So as I think about that, The reality is that in today's age, not too many people care about Atalanto. The reality was, in Paul's day, not too many people cared about Colossae. But guess what? Paul wasn't most people. And even though most people may not care about Atalanto today, Jesus Christ is not most people. And this church is not most people. 
I think it's remarkable if you read those verses again, notice the affection that Paul shares for these people. It's not simply that he had never met them personally. It's not simply that he hadn't visited their church personally. It's beyond that. This was a town that many looked at as an armpit, and Paul loved them. Paul cared for them. And his heart broke when he found out that he had, there were people infiltrating that church and trying to lead them away from Jesus. Oh, Paul was not most people. Look at verses 3 through 6. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you already have heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The first half of Colossians 1 is amazing not only because it reveals Paul's heart for the church, but it's also amazing because it reveals the church's faith, hope, and love. Remember in just the latter part of of the book of 1 Corinthians, what Paul says in the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, says these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is Love. I love how in those verses, verses 3 through 6, he points out the faith of those Colossian Christians in that podunk little town. He points out the love of those Christians in that little bitty town that no one cared about. And he lifts up the hope they had in Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 8, there's some wonderful insights revealed in those verses. Paul tells us in verse 7 that the Colossian Christians had first heard the gospel message from a man named Epaphras. So I mentioned to you earlier, in Acts 19, verse 10, when Paul was there in Ephesus, it says because of that two-year ministry, the gospel was shared throughout Asia Minor, throughout the province of Asia. And so what we believe happened was Epaphras, whose hometown was in Colossae, for whatever reason was there in Ephesus when Paul was there for two years. In Ephesus, in Ephesus Epaphras was led to Christ, and he was discipled by Paul, and then he took the gospel a hundred miles back to his hometown of Colossae. And so what a wonderful thing. Epaphras evidently uh, was that disciple of Paul who had planted that church in Colossae. And according to Paul here in chapter 1, Epaphras had done a marvelous job of teaching them God's word and teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to verse 6, ever since receiving the gospel, the Christians had been growing and had been bearing spiritual fruit. Now look at verse 9. Paul says in verse 9, Since the day we heard about you, we have what? We have not stopped praying for you. Let that sink in for just a moment. Since the moment we heard about you, bear in mind he'd never met them, never been to their church, maybe never even visited their town. Bear in mind he hadn't experienced those things with them, but from the moment... He heard about these Christians in this little town he had never visited, the church he had never planted. He couldn't stop praying for them. And there were three specific things that he reveals that he was praying for these Christians. And this is where I want to spend our next few minutes together. In verses 9 through 12, Paul points out these three wonderful prayers that he was lifting up for them. And I think we'll find that these are three prayers that we should lift up for ourselves and for each other. Here at FCC. Number one, Paul prays for spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
We find that in verse 9 where Paul writes, We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just tell us His will and never helps us understand it? Now, there are certainly times when God will ask us to do things and we don't understand why. But that's certainly not all the time. God so often will share with us what He wants us to do and then give us understanding as to why He wants us to do them. This is such a glorious prayer. I'd love for you to start praying this prayer for me. Start praying this prayer for our elders here at First Christian Church. Start praying this for our staff. Start praying this for each other in our church body. Oh, Father God, don't just give our church leaders some knowledge of You. Won't You fill them to the brim with the knowledge of You and Your will? Won't You give them not just some spiritual wisdom and understanding? Won't You give them all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Isn't that a great prayer? Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. None of this, you know what, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I know God pretty well. None of this, you know, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I know the Bible pretty well. Paul says, pretty well ain't going to cut it as the days go by. I want you to be overflowing with your knowledge of God. I want you to know Him better and better. I want you to understand His Word better and better as each month and each year passes. What a wonderful prayer. This word fill in the New Testament means to be controlled by. You want to jot that down on your handout. This word fill that Paul uses means to be controlled by. And so that's kind of a powerful insight because if someone is filled with anger, scripturally it's saying that they are controlled by anger. If there is a woman of God who is filled with the Holy Spirit, it means that she is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so here, if we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, it means we are controlled by God's will. Isn't that cool? Do you want to be controlled by God's will? Some of us may say, honestly, no, I'm not going to raise my hand to that one. But I hope that you do. I, I don't want to just have God partially in control. As I share with new believers who are thinking about giving their, uh, get, getting baptized, or if I'm speaking to someone who's never made a decision to Christ about giving their lives to Christ and, and sealing that with baptism, consistently when I'm talking to these individuals, I talk to them about putting Jesus Christ in the driver's seat. Not just having Him in the driver's seat for a few days and then saying, scoot on over Jesus, ride shotgun for a while, I'm going to take the wheel. No, 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 that's just not going to cut it. Jesus Christ must stay in the driver's seat. Paul wants them to be filled with that understanding of Christ, filled with the knowledge of His will. In other words, controlled by His will. Now let me warn you, church, if you are not growing in your understanding of God's will, if you are not filled with more and more knowledge about God's Word and the truth of His Word, sooner or later, chances are you'll be duped by some false teacher that comes along. You know how many Christians, I don't know a number, but I know there's a lot, How many young, immature Christians are pulled into Mormonism each year because they do not understand God's Word and they're easily duped by Mormon missionaries that knock on their door and use the same terminology that we use in a Bible-teaching church, but those terms mean completely different things in Mormonism? 
Do you know how many Christians are duped by Jehovah's Witnesses that say, oh, that's great that you accepted Jesus. Oh, that's great you study the Bible. Now let's share something extra with you that you're missing. You see what they're doing? They're shoving Jesus over to one side of the plate and saying, you've got to have the watchtower on that plate as well. Or shoving Jesus over to one side and saying, you've got to have the Mormon church on that plate as well. You know how many people are duped by Joel Olstein and many of the teachers that change up things in Scripture and add on an extra dose of pop psychology or feel-good religion? Without a doubt, Jesus is still there. But the question is, is Jesus all that is there? More times than not, the answer is no. And so Paul says, I don't want you to just be three-quarters of the way filled with the knowledge of God's Word. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's Word. Would you do me a favor and start praying that for me? God, we don't just want Dane to know a lot of Your Word. We want him to be filled with the knowledge of You. Father, we don't want our pastor at the church to just be partially controlled by You. We want him to be fully 100% controlled by the Holy Spirit because that preacher's got some issues. That preacher's got some problems. He's a little rough around the edges. He's better than he used to be, but he's a little rough around the edges. Would you fill him with the knowledge of You? Would you make sure that he's completely controlled by You? Because as we follow our leadership here at First Christian Church, we want to know that our leaders are following You 100%. Amen? Number two, the second prayer he lifts up, we find in verse 10, Paul prays for a fruitful life that pleases God. He prays for a fruitful life that that pleases God. Verse 10 reads, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Never forget this, in God's kingdom, knowing God's will and doing God's will always go hand in hand. They always do. Remember that Jesus taught us, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus went on to say, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command. And I love how James puts it in James chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so here's a a little secret of identifying false teaching. If someone comes around and says they've got this spiritual truth or this spiritual insight that somehow you have missed, ask yourself the question, is there a practical application to this spiritual insight? Is there a practical application to this word of wisdom that I'm being given? If that practical insight or that so-called spiritual insight does not have a practical application, chances are it's not from God's Word. Because God is very concerned with learning leading to teaching. Excuse me, learning leading to doing. Teaching that inspires living. That's what Jesus Christ is concerned about. Many people have this false notion that Christians just sit around and fill our heads with knowledge so we'll do well in the next game of of Bible trivia pursuit. But, But that's not the purpose of learning. As we learn God's Word, we get to know Him better. As we get to know Him better, we can love Him better and obey Him better and live better. Amen? It's never about some ivory tower of just filling my head with this biblical knowledge just so that for the sake of having my head filled with biblical knowledge. There must always be a practicality to it. I love how evangelist D.L. Moody used to say it. He used to say it this way, Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. That's pretty good, isn't it? 
Well, what on earth does that mean? What he's saying is, every Bible, when it's ingested by a Christian, should be walked. Every bit of the Word of God that you learn needs to be lived out. It needs to go with you as you walk from here to there and go about your daily life. Christians, God doesn't want us to just sit around and fill our heads with more Bible trivia. That's unacceptable. Our Bible knowledge must have a practical application. This knowledge must bear fruit. I think uh, this past month here at FCC was a great example of that. I spent the month, month teaching you about prayer, not for the purpose of you simply knowing more about prayer. I believe the Lord inspired me to teach us about prayer in the month of January because Jesus Christ wants us to pray. Jesus Christ wants us to pray more. He wants us to pray deeper prayers. He wants us to pray more impactful prayers. And so I hope and pray that as you came this past month and and learned about prayer and, and those four key pillars of prayer, praise and thanks and repentance and asking and yielding to God's will, I hope that bolstered your prayer life. I hope that empowers you to pray with greater effectiveness and closeness to Christ than ever before. This series here in the book of Colossians is not an exercise in futility, just so we know more about this weird book called Colossians. This wonderful book that we'll be in over the next two months is to prepare us to stand firm on the truth of God's Word and not be duped by the false teaching that I guarantee you will come your way sooner or later. I want you, when that knock comes at your door and the guy's got his nice little white shirt and his little uh, elder badge, I want you to be able to stand firm against false teaching. I want you to be able to stand firm when someone subtly uh, works something in. And earlier, sometimes I pick on Olstein. I didn't mean to lump him in the same category as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, but I hope you understand my point. Sometimes we stray from God's Word and add some things that don't add anything to Jesus Christ. And so I want you to be able to stand firm whether it is truly a cult or whether it is simply someone just straying off the path a little bit. I want you to stand firm. And so God is going to make sure that this series is very practical, that there's a practical application for it. The third prayer that he lifts up for his friends there in Colossae, Paul prays for their character to be fully transformed. He prays for their character to be fully transformed. Notice verses 11 and 12. He writes, "...being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light." Many churches these days emphasize biblical knowledge. And that's a wonderful thing, but they emphasize biblical knowledge at the expense of living out biblical knowledge truth. Many churches teach God's Word, but the church is an active serving in the community and meeting needs. Other churches these days will preach a a social gospel. They focus in on uh, being a blessing to the poor and being a blessing to those that are hurting, which are wonderful things, but they neglect to teach God's Word faithfully. Some churches have the first two of those things together. They teach God's words faithfully and they have service opportunities for the people in their church, but they forget this third prayer that Jesus Christ is in the business of building our character from the inside out, is He not? He wants us to grow in love. He wants us to grow in patience. He wants us to grow in endurance. He wants us to grow in in loving kindness. He wants us to grow in all of these things. He wants the full package. So God's plan has always been, as we learn and as we serve, to be transformed 
to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions several building blocks of this Christ-like character here in verses 11 and 12. As Jesus Christ stands strong under temptation and trial, Paul says, I pray that you will stand strong under temptation and trial. As Jesus Christ endures crummy circumstances, I pray that you too will endure crummy circumstances. As Jesus Christ was patient with difficult people. How many of you this last week encountered some difficult people? If the person sitting next to you, don't raise your hand. Okay? He says, just as Jesus Christ was patient with difficult people, I am praying that you will be patient with difficult people. Paul prays that we would be patient. He prays that we would have the joy that Jesus Christ has, His joy. And Paul prays that we would give thanks as Jesus Christ gives thanks in all circumstances. Paul prays that we would have those virtues, that we would have that character growing so we can be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is in the business of character formation. He is shaping you. He is shaping me from the inside out. From the bottom of his heart, Paul thanks God for the faith and the hope and the love that the Colossian Christians had. And he does not stop praying for them. He prays that they will overflow with spiritual knowledge and understanding. He prays that their knowledge will be lived out, that they will live fruitful lives that please God. Paul prays that their character will continue to be transformed into the, into the image of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful, powerful prayer, is it not? Amen. As Brennan comes forward to help lead us into our time of invitation, I want you to think about what Paul has prayed. And as I lead us in a prayer in just a moment, I want us to begin praying this, not just for our leadership, not just for our staff, but be praying this for each other. Think of this wonderful prayer. Oh God, I pray that my brothers and sisters here in my church family would not just grow a little bit in their knowledge of You and Your Word. I pray they'd be overflowing in their knowledge and understanding of You and Your Word. God, I don't simply pray that their character would be partially transformed, but their character would be fully transformed. God, I don't simply pray that there would be some spiritual fruit in their lives. I pray that the fruit would be overflowing, that it would be abundant, that we would be so fruitful as a church and we would please God so much. What a wonderful three-part prayer for our church family. Would you pray with me? God, we come to You. And we thank You for Your glorious Word. And Lord, in one sense, I look at this prayer And I say, wow, I wish I had come up with that. That is really, really good. But Lord, there it is in black and white in Your Word. I don't need to have been the one to originally have penned this prayer. But I can pray it just the same. Your Holy Spirit can pray this prayer through me. So Lord, I want to pray what Paul prayed for the Colossian Christians. Lord, I pray for each and every member of First Christian Church each and every regular attender of this congregation. I pray for each and every visitor who's in the room today. Lord, that our knowledge of Jesus Christ, our understanding of Jesus Christ and Your Word would grow more and more abundantly to overflowing. Lord, help us to get to know You this month better than ever before. Help that knowledge of You to overflow so, Lord, we cannot be led easily astray. 
Lord Jesus, I don't know each person in this room how long you will give me an opportunity to teach them week after week. Lord, maybe there's some in this room who are just visiting from out of town and they'll never sit under one of my sermons ever again. Lord, I pray for those individuals, oh God, that they would find a church home close to their home, oh God, and they would dig their roots deeply in your word and get to know you better and better so they can stay strong in the day of trial. Lord, I pray that each of us here, O God, would not just learn Your Word, but live out Your Word. Because, O God, we want to please You. We want to be abundant in our fruitfulness. And Lord, some of us, maybe You need to do some pruning. Maybe You need to cut us back from some things. And if that's what You must do to make us more fruitful, we give You permission today, God. Prune us if You have to. But we want to be fruitful for You. We want to please You. We want to hear those words on the day we stand before You at the Bema Seat Judgment. We want to hear You say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, we want to develop in our character and be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in our love. Help us to grow in our patience. Help us to grow in our endurance. Help us to grow in our strength. Help us to grow in our joy. Help us to grow, O God, in our self-control. Help us to grow in those things, O God, and be conformed to the image of Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen.